Alan Roebuck is a climatologist at Rutgers University and was a member of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is Alan Roebuck. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. Uh, I'm here with Alan Roebuck. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure. Uh, so among the many illustrious uh, events of your career, you were on the IPCC, the, the UN's International Panel on, uh, on Climate Change. And these reports are obviously taken very seriously. And one of the things that has always struck me and I think struck other people about these IPCC reports is that oftentimes they come out um, they make certain predictions about um, uh, the environment, uh, temperature rises, CO2 levels, et cetera. And it seems like the reality is always, it, it winds up being much worse than the predictions uh, were in the beginning. It, am I wrong there or why is that? Are people just like naturally really conservative there and don't want to appear alarmist? It's a conservative process. So you have to, first of all, when it comes out, it's about a year out of date because like I said, we have to stop considering new work. And so new work has been done by the time it actually is published. And it has to be a consensus. So everybody has to agree on it. And when it's finally done, they have a final meeting where government representatives come and they push back on some of it. Part of it is to make sure they understand the jargon or how, how it's being communicated. But part of it is they don't like some of the answers. And so the final document is again a consensus, and that includes petrostates, which are polluting the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and don't really want any restrictions. That includes countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia and the United States and big producers of, of fossil fuels. And so they push back on some of the statements. The predictions of climate change also depend on our best understanding. For example, sea level rise. Sea level is rising because the ocean is getting warmer and it's expanding. Sea level is also rising because ice on land, glaciers on in mountains, but big ice sheets also are melting and putting more water into the ocean. That's also filling it up. One of the processes that has not been well understood until very recently is the melting of Greenland and Antarctica, how glaciers on the coast uh, collapse and flow into the ocean. And the climate models at the time didn't have the detail necessary to simulate all the details of how ice sheets could collapse and, and shelves of ice could come in. And so the predictions didn't include those processes because we weren't sure that we were getting them right. And so processes which make it worse, make the sea level rise faster, just hadn't been included. And, and the, the meetings, the, the report said we're ignoring these processes. They might make it worse, but we just can't say for sure that we know enough about them to say how much additional sea level rise there will be. I see. When you said government officials push back on that, did, did you witness any uh, specific government officials come in and say, listen, don't, well, what do they even say? Do they say, don't include this in there? Or do they say, I disagree with you scientists? I wasn't part of the meetings uh, at the end where they, government representatives come in and only a small number of scientists go and, and, and meet with them for about a week at the end. So I wasn't part of that process, so I, I don't know. But in addition to having scientists from around the world comment and review the, the 
final report, governments are also invited to. So I've been invited by the US government to contribute to their report that's going in or just to do it on my own. They say, don't do it both, just do it whichever way you want. So uh, in the United States, it's pretty open. I mean, you can do whatever you want. No, uh, and unfortunately, depending on who the president is, there's different biases from the government about what, what to do or not to do about climate change. You mentioned geoengineering in there. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because uh, this is something that you've studied the effects of um, and uh, have a deep knowledge of. And also, it seems as though um, we're at a point where, uh, I, I mean, I remember hearing things like, okay, you know, we, we can't, uh, can't go above 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in temperature. And then it was, you know, okay, we'll definitely don't want to push past two degrees. And like, it seems as though we're hitting benchmarks that we weren't supposed to hit. And we are going to want to reduce emissions, but perhaps it's too late for certain, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have certain problems regardless. Um, so it seems like geoengineering has to be part of this equation. So first off, what is on the menu of options here that we can, that we can do? All right, so let's let's talk about what we mean by geoengineering. We all, we call it climate intervention now. It's a it's a more precise term. There's two different flavors of it. One is to reflect sunlight to cool Earth, putting a cloud up in the stratosphere like volcanic eruptions do. That's called solar radiation modification. And the other is taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, that is which is what's causing the warming. So that's called carbon dioxide removal. These are both called climate intervention, both called geoengineering, but they're quite different. They're both attempts by humans to control climate on purpose. If you drove your car today and it wasn't an electric car, you were putting CO2 in the atmosphere, but you weren't trying to warm the planet, you're trying to go somewhere. So that's not geoengineering, but geoengineering is doing it on purpose. And these two ideas are, are different. Carbon dioxide removal probably is a good idea, most people agree, if you could do it on a large enough scale and do it uh, cheaply enough and do it safely. Anybody that works on this will tell you, the first thing they'll tell you is, we don't wanna be doing this. We know what the solution is to global warming. Global warming is being caused by humans and the solution is to leave the fossil fuels in the ground, leave the oil and coal and natural gas in the ground and use solar power, wind power to power the world. And some people, say we should use nuclear power. Some people say we don't need nuclear power. That's a different agree argument, but it's to not continue to use the atmosphere as a sewer for our carbon dioxide with no sewer fee. That's the situation now. I mean, if you flush your toilet or throw stuff in the trash, you gotta pay somebody to deal with the waste. But if you dump CO2 in the atmosphere, there's no fee for it. So uh, the solution is to gradually impose a fee to have a carbon tax or a carbon fee gradually going up. And over time, this will be a huge incentive to people to develop the technology people need to not dump CO2 and to also not pay, not dump CO2 at all, not to do it and to develop the technology. And there are various ideas of where the money would go. If it was all returned to people, the government didn't keep any of it. Then if you put less CO2 than average in the atmosphere, then you would make money each year. And if it was a gradually increasing fee and people could plan on it, that would be the solution. That would be, 
make it economically and it would economically incentivize people to do it. And I think in the end, people vote with their pocketbooks. They don't want to pay a lot for gasoline right now. People are frustrated because gas costs so much, but they're more concerned with getting somewhere than they are with climate change decades from now. But if they had if they had to pay a fee based on the, the damage, then, then uh, that would be feedback to them. So we don't want to work on that. Now about geo, so the, the solutions to global warming. There's there's various options we can take. We can do nothing, which is basically what we're doing now. We can do mitigation, which is reducing the emission of greenhouse gases. We could do adaptation, that is learn to live with a warmer climate. I live at the Jersey Shore, and so the houses that were destroyed by Hurricane Sandy are being rebuilt on 10-foot tall poles, so that the next time it floods, they'll they'll be okay. Or we could do geoengineering. Uh, and if we want to do geoengineering today, we couldn't because the technology doesn't exist. There's no way to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere on a large scale. There are some experimental plants which are very expensive and, and uh, do almost nothing so far. If we wanted to reflect sunlight, we have no technology to go up in the atmosphere and create a cloud. There are ideas on the drawing board of how to invent airplanes that could fly up and spray sulfur gases like volcanic eruptions do, but they don't exist. So it would take a decade or more to even create them and do it if we wanted to start it. So I work on stratospheric aerosols, stratospheric particles, and I try to calculate both the potential benefits of doing this and the potential risks. So that in the future, if society is tempted to do it, they'll be able to make an informed decision. And as you said, uh, there's not much effort now to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Carbon dioxide emissions continue to go up. There was a little dip because of COVID. People were staying home, but now it, it's gone back up. And the worst source of carbon dioxide is coal. Coal puts a lot more carbon dioxide per unit energy than other sources like natural gas. And China puts uh, emitter carbon dioxide, at least 50% more than the United States right now. And everybody in India wants to have a light in their house or a fan or a refrigerator or even an air conditioner. And they have lots of coal and that's cheap so far. And so people are still building, they're still building coal fired power plants and developing coal reserves. And so until we can reverse that, there's going to be a certain amount of climate change. And the question is, is it going to be so dangerous that we really want to be tempted to do solar radiation uh, mitigation, solar radiation management to, to uh, reduce the worst parts of the climate change while we try and get the uh, mitigation uh, uh, in hand, while we try and develop an infrastructure of wind and solar that can run the world? When you talk about aerosols being sprayed uh, in the atmosphere and you compare it to the volcanic eruptions. Uh, there was recently, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, the Tonga volcanic er eruption um, that I've, as you, as you said, things like that can potentially cool the planet a little bit. Um, do we know, I mean, this is kind of an offhand calculation, but about like how many of those Tonga volcanic eruptions per year would we have to be pumping into the atmosphere to make any uh, appreciable difference? W would it just be an enormous amount of um, aerosols? 
so aerosols are little droplets, like it's basically sulfuric acid droplets, a little a cloud. And what volcanoes put up is sulfur dioxide gas, SO2, and it reacts with water to form a thin cloud of sulfuric acid droplets. The last big eruption was the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991 in the Philippines. It put about 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide gas. The Hunga Tonga er eruption, the recent one, put 2% of that in, put only 400,000 uh, tons. And so you'd need 50 of those to make one Pinatubo. So that eruption probably isn't going to cause much climate change. But Pinatubo did. The next year, global average temperatures were about a degree Fahrenheit, about half a degree Celsius colder than normal. And so, and this cooling lasted for a couple of years. And then the aerosols fell out, the clouds fell out, and the sun was just as bright as it was before. So we calculate how many Pinatubos per year would you have to do? And the question is how much cooling do you want? How much do you want to cool the planet? Do you want to cool, keep the temperature at one and a half degrees above pre-industrial or do you want to bring it back to pre-industrial? How do we set the planetary thermostat? And deciding that is one of the main issues. How, how could the world decide? What if Russia and Canada don't mind it being a little bit warmer? They spend less money on heating their homes in the winter. They can, their agriculture improves. They can exploit the Arctic Ocean, whereas Bangladesh and islands in the Pacific, which are drowning now, want it even colder than it is now. How do we, how does the world even decide on that? That's one of the main governance issues that's not never been figured out. So if we wanted to uh, keep, start in 2020 and business as usual, increasing CO2 for the rest of, and other greenhouse gases, methane, nitrous oxide, till the end of the 21st century, we've calculated that it would take about one Pinatubo every couple months. Wow. Every year. And the problem is if there's a cloud up there and you put more SO2 gas up, it will not form more small particles. They will take the particles that are there and make them bigger. And so if the particles become bigger per unit mass, they don't reflect as much sunlight and they also fall out faster. And so any additional SO2 you put in won't be as effective as the initial SO2 you put in. So we, yeah, we've done those calculations and we have a pretty good feel for that. What about putting up giant mirrors? Is that crazy? Yeah, uh, it's crazy, but it's been suggested. Uh, one idea, I don't know if you know about the James Webb telescope, which yeah. was launched, amazing piece of technology. It launched a, a, a few weeks ago it's on its way to the Lagrange three point, which is a point between uh, the past the earth and the earth is between that point and the sun. So it will be in the earth's shadow beyond the moon's orbit. And because of the different pulls of gravity, it can, once it gets there, it'll just stay there and right. the earth will, sh will shade it and it will look into outer space. It has to be very cold uh, because it's looking at infrared radiation. On the other side of earth, there's a Lagrange one point, which is between the earth and the sun. And if you put something there, it will also be gravitationally stable and be locked there by the gravity. And so we've calculated how many mirrors you'd have to put up there. And there was a paper uh, written by, uh, by Roger Angel. He said, uh, let's take uh, discs like two feet across, like Frisbees, very, very thin, stack them up to more than a mile high and 
you would launch them every every five minutes, 20 of them for 20 years, and then you get enough up there to form a cloud to reflect sunlight. And every one of them is going to be controlled individually and, and run on solar power, and nothing could go wrong with this. So yeah. people think it's kind of crazy. It would cost you know many, many trillions of dollars, and nobody's taking that seriously. So people have talked about putting mirrors in space uh, or putting balloons up in the stratosphere that are reflective and reflect sunlight. In fact, when Lyndon Johnson was president in 1965, before you were born, there was a report to the president on the environmental impacts of climate change. And the appendix even talked about balloons or using guns to shoot particles up there. Or, or uh, uh, So people have been thinking about this for a long time. But the, the technique which seems to be the most doable is to emulate a volcanic eruption and fly a fleet of airplanes up there and spray SO2 gas and, and it will form this cloud of uh, sulfuric acid cloud. Now, uh, we, go ahead, sorry. Oh, we have experience with that because large volcanic eruptions do that every once in a while. And it eventually comes out and some of it's preserved in the ice caps over Greenland and Antarctica. So we can take a core out of the ice cap and measure that find the layers of sulfur that were put in there from previous eruptions and measure how big the eruptions were. And that's one of the best data sets we have for calculating how volcanic eruptions cause climate change in the past. And you mentioned some of the, the cons of this approach, uh, sulfuric acid in the atmosphere. I don't know much about it. It sounds uh, like there could be dangers to that. Uh, what are they? So humans put about 100 million tons of SO2 in the atmosphere every year as a byproduct of burning coal and oil, which, is, which has a little bit of sulfur in it. And so when it comes out, we call it acid rain. And places where there's a lot of emissions have bad air pollution. And if you look out and the atmosphere looks kind of hazy, the main thing you see is sulfate aerosol particles. The lifetime in the lower atmosphere is about a week because the, they get rained out or uh, washed out. In the stratosphere, it's about a year because there's no rain up there. So that's why we talk about putting them in the stratosphere. They'll last much longer and spread around the world. But whatever you put up comes out. And so the question is how much is coming out? And in places where air is polluted, it's not good for your health. And a certain amount of people die every year because of the excess pollution. So if you were going to, the, my first calculation, which I did uh, when I first started working on this 15 years ago, we were putting out 5 million tons of SO2 in every year. So that was one Pinatubo every four years. And that was much less than humans are putting in in the troposphere uh, right now. So in polluted areas right now, you really wouldn't notice it. In pristine areas, you would notice it a little bit. And so it wouldn't be good. But that doesn't seem to be a, a, a game change or something that would stop it. It would, it would be a little bit of extra sulfur coming out as acid rain or acid snow. But it wouldn't be, it would be pretty dilute by the time it got to the ground. Um, I'm curious. I, I know you, you have strong opinions on nuclear weapons, uh, which I want to get into. Um, but I'm also curious your thoughts on nuclear power. Uh, some people say it's, you know, a, a clean replacement to fossil fuels, um, you know, not without its risks as well. Do you, do you have any strong feelings there? I do. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, I think that... Uh, the current 
technology that's used for for uh, generating electricity with nuclear power can have catastrophic accidents. And we saw at Fukushima, at Chernobyl, at Three Mile Island. And so the cost of cleaning up after Fukushima in Japan, which still isn't done, they still haven't figured out how to completely clean it up, is more than all the electricity they got in the whole lifetime of all the nuclear power plants in Japan. So it's very expensive to build them and it's much cheaper to build uh, windmills and solar panels. So we don't, uh, and much faster. The spent fuel is highly radioactive and nobody knows what to do about it. And right now they're sitting in casks next to every nuclear power plant and nobody knows what to do about it. There, there are ideas of trucking them to certain repositories like Yucca Mountain in Nevada, which was never agreed to by, by people in Nevada or by the people who's lived by the highways where they would take this stuff. And so that's sitting there waiting as a target for terrorists. And so we don't, the routine operation of nuclear power plants puts radioactivity into the air. You find cancer clusters near the, near the uh, reactors. The mining of uranium is very dangerous for the miners. And so you find higher incidences of cancer for them and you find where the tailings go, where the waste from the mining goes is, is pretty uh, terrible place. And so there's a lot of reasons why it's, <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense. People claim that, well, there are new technologies that are much safer. They won't have catastrophic meltdowns. They won't produce as much radioactivity. And I think we should do some research on that to see if it's really possible. But in the meantime, we can, we can, the price of wind and solar is really going down very quickly. And we know that we need a more robust grid to distribute the electricity. We need better ways of storing the electricity with batteries or pumping water up into reservoirs or, or uh, there are different ideas about that. But uh, that's the way to solve the, this problem. And we can do it much faster and cheaper that way than with nuclear power and safer. Um, is solar and wind sufficient to replace our energy need or our demand for energy that we have right now? Yes. There's enough sun, uh, enough energy coming from the sun to, to power the world many times over. Uh, enough energy coming from the sun, but the actual solar panels themselves, there's some, uh, you know, there's some, I mean, enough, right. Yeah. They, they, right now I think they're about 15% of the energy they convert into electricity. So, uh, that amount, there's enough solar energy that 15% of it's enough to power the world. Yes. Okay. Um, and since we're on the subject of nuclear, I do want to ask your opinion, uh, your thoughts on nuclear weapons and, uh, perhaps a, a good way to enter this conversation. You've done uh, a lot of studies of nuclear winter, and that's a term that I think all of us have heard before, um, and it, it, it evokes an idea, but what scientifically is going on there? What is nuclear winter? So I first started studying the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate, and the volcanic eruptions are the biggest natural cause of climate change over, over the past hundred thousand years or thousands of years. And they, like we discussed, they put a, a cloud up in the, in the stratosphere that reflects sunlight. That's another thing that would be bad about geoengineering. You wouldn't have blue skies anymore. Uh, and so people are talking about doing that on purpose. A nuclear war would involve 
targeting cities and industrial areas, which would burn and catch on fire. And the smoke from the fires would go up into the atmosphere. And that would be get up into the stratosphere and block out the sunlight and make it so cold that even in the summertime, in you temperatures would be below freezing uh, in the middle latitudes after a nuclear war between the US and Russia. That's what nuclear winter is. Temperatures below freezing even in the, in the summertime because of the smoke from the fires that would be started by the nuclear weapons. And this is a, a probably almost certainly an absurd idea, but if nuclear weapons can reduce global temperatures that much, has there been any talk about deliberately on some uh, you know, level of the atmosphere detonating a nuclear bomb? No. Uh, so there been a lot. There were a lot of tests in the atmosphere of nuclear weapons, but they didn't produce nuclear winter because they were done in deserts or in the oceans where there was nothing to burn. Oh, I see. So, okay. so the point is the smoke is the black carbon particles. It's not the nuclear weapons. So my student Ben Kravitz for his PhD dissertation calculated what if we wanted to do geoengineering with with black soot with carbon. And so he calculated how much you would need, how much it would cost to put it up there. And, and because it absorbs sunlight is black, it will heat the stratosphere and be locked into the top of the stratosphere and last for many years, not just for one year after like the sulfate aerosols. But it, the heating of the stratosphere would destroy ozone. And the ozone is protecting us from ultraviolet radiation. So you would be having a, dish, a lot more ultraviolet radiation reaching the surface. Uh, as as a part of the payment for for making it colder, so it's it seems like and then the when the soot came out, it'll be much more polluting than than the sulfate sulfuric acid. So uh, nobody thinks that that's a good idea for geoengineering. In fact, I wrote an article uh, called a uh, uh, I'm I'm blanking on it. Uh, a a uh, it was it was based on the. Uh, the idea of using a nuclear war to solve global warming. And indeed, it would uh, stop civilization, so there'd be no more CO2 going up, and you would stop the global warming. But it's not its not a good solution. Yes, it's the worst kind of brute force solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, what if there's some kind of small scale, or, or let's say regional conflict, like if India and Pakistan went at it and fired nukes at each other, is it possible that the effects would mostly be confined to that region of the world, or are we inevitably going to feel this? Uh, because the smoke lasts for so long, it would uh, go around the world and cover the whole world no matter where it was put in. So it doesn't matter where it would be put in. So the radiation itself is not really the the killer that we think it is. I mean, it's obviously it's terrible, but it's not the the primary source of this long lasting uh, death of civilization. Yeah, locally near uh, near uh, uh, where the weapons would would be put up uh, would would be used. It would be terrible. The local effects would be terrible, and part of that would be radioactivity for sure. But uh, for uh, Globally, the, the main effect would be the climate change and the lack of the lack of uh, of food. I see. One of the uh, the interesting turns in your life. Uh, Wait a minute. Uh, is, I'm, I'm a modest proposal. That's what I called it. 
based on based on the the uh, uh, see, see. based on the article about you know uh eating babies uh to solve the 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 problem uh uh in in uh in in england uh uh the uh by Jonathan Swift, you know, a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. That was published in 1729. So I, <laughs> I modeled it on that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Um, I was just curious because it, through this line of work, uh, specifically about nuclear winter, you sort of an interesting turn in your life. You, you got to meet Fidel Castro yes how the hell did that happen i had a student juan carlos antonio from cuba who was interested in volcanic eruptions and he came to the united states and got a master's and phd with me working on how how you can measure volcanic eruption the clouds with lidar with the lasers that go up and you get a reflected light and he had started using a lidar in cuba that was given to them by the russians and so he was interested in that and after he got his PhD, he went back to work in Cuba doing research there. One day I got an email from him. He said, the Cubans want you to come here to talk about climate change. And I said, well, what, I don't understand. And he sent me uh, a web page where Fidel Castro was sitting there talking to uh, the head of the uh, Tomas Gutierrez, the head of the Cuban Weather Service, about nuclear winter. And uh, so I said, well, uh, OK. Uh, this was in September and I was just about to start teaching. And they said, can you come in September? I said, well, how about next year? I'll be on sabbatical. No, no, we want you to come right now. So I went down there and I, I went to Canada and flew down there on Air Canada. Uh, this is before American flights were regularly scheduled to go to, Cu to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And uh, they met me at the airport and took me in to the VIP room and to the Hotel Nacional, which is this wonderful Art Deco hotel built by American gangsters in, in Havana. And uh, they took me up to the VIP room uh, floor and I had a uh, two bedroom suite with two bedrooms and two bathrooms. And uh, I said, this is, this is strange. This is not like when I went to Cuba before. And so and then they said, well, uh, can you give a talk about a uh, nuclear winter? And then, okay. And then they, then, then we were having lunch at the nice restaurant and Tomas's phone rang and he said, uh, see, see, comandante, momentito. Uh, they want to know if it's okay if the co comandante comes to your talk. And I said, uh, uh, okay. And so uh, that, that's Fidel. So I went, you know, you know, he uh, fell down and broke his his shoulder and his leg uh, when he was at a at a uh, uh, making a speech and then he got very sick probably with cancer and he gave up control of the government to his brother Raul but eventually he got better and I guess got kind of bored and somehow discovered my work and he asked his son Fidelito who was the president science advisor who's my age and he, he found out that Juan Carlos had worked with me and so through Juan Carlos they got to me and so I went out to this uh, conference center and there were a couple hundred people there and uh they Fidel came out and sat right next to me and I gave my talk and it was simultaneously translated and uh, it was a very surreal experience and then afterwards he uh, he came up to uh, to uh, I went to a room and we talked for a while I don't know if you can see on my on my wall here there 
there's a uh, I can see behind you. Yeah. There's a couple pictures of of uh, of me and uh, where is uh, me and Fidel up there. So uh, he uh, and so we talked, and then the next week in his blog, he uh, said we have to get rid of nuclear weapons. And so uh, there's a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. It was passed by the United Nations a couple, two days ago was the, or yesterday, I guess, was the anniversary, the first anniversary of the nuclear ban treaty that more than 59 nations now have ratified it. Cuba was one of the first ones to ratify it. I got to meet him once more a year later when I went down there as part of a delegation of American scientists. And we there gave us lunch at this very nice restaurant. And then uh, Fidelito came up to me and said, We're, uh, I said, you know, I, last time I came, I didn't even know I was going to meet your father or you. And uh, I didn't have any presents. But now I brought you two Rutgers baseball caps, a blue <laughs> one and a black one. And he said, well, which one is for me? Which one is for my father? I said, I don't care. Just give him one of them, keep the other one. He said, well, maybe we'll let him decide. I said, what? He said, yeah, we're going to go meet him after after lunch. And so <laughs> we went and I sat across the table from him for more than three hours. He told me his whole life story, wow. uh, me and one other scientist, and talked about how when the Russians were sending them a, a boat every day, came with supplies, and when they asked to put nuclear weapons into Cuba, he couldn't say no. And uh, If you go to my homepage, you can click on the two pictures of me and Fidel and the link is to the stories of the whole time I met him both times, both very surreal times. When he mentioned the, basically what you're saying is the Russians were giving them supplies. They were cut off by the United States and right. embargo. embargo. So yes. I, I imagine them getting supplies was probably, you know, very, very vital uh, to their country. And then you're saying that they were saying the, the Russians said, here, we're going to put it, uh, nukes in your country and they were like well can't say no to that 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 was their version of, of events yeah. did you yes. did you feel that he was spinning things at all hard to say everybody spins things especially politicians i don't right. know I, I wasn't going to challenge him yeah. uh, <laughs> i said yes 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 sir that's what that that's very interesting so i i yeah. i, I uh but he talked about, you know, the Bay, of, the Bay of Pigs invasion had just happened. And, and uh, he talked about how they had distributed their airplanes at different airports so they wouldn't all get attacked if the Americans attacked. And they thought the Americans were going to attack them. In fact, uh, on the front of the Hotel Nacional, there's a big gun there that they, it's right on the water to, to uh, guard against attacks from, from the imperialist uh, United States. And on one day in October 1962, they, uh, Soviet, the uh, a gunner shot down an American U-2 plane that fell uh, onto Santiago at the other end of Cuba. And when Juan Carlos first came to America, I was at the University of Maryland. I took him to the Air and Space Museum. And there's a, a room in there for remote sensing, uh, for looking at Earth from satellites and airplanes. And hanging there is a civilian version of a U-2 plane, uh, that, which is now used can fly up to 20 kilometers and measure things. And I said, isn't that interesting? He said, well, I've seen one of those before. I said, what? Because the the engine from the one they shot down is on display in Havana now as a, as a, oh, wow. as a trophy. So, uh, but yeah, that, I was, I was uh, thanks to Nuclear Winter, I got to meet Fidel Castro. I got to meet Carl Sagan. 
I met my wife because I was giving a talk at, on nuclear winter at a conference and she was teaching peace studies at a college and, and it was at the same conference. And so uh, it's, and, and this is a problem that was created by humans and we've reduced the number of nuclear weapons that we, from 70,000 that existed during the height of the cold war in 1980, when Reagan and Gorbachev agreed to stop the arms race down to about 10,000 now, but that's still way too many. And it's enough, and it's still enough to produce nuclear winter. There's only nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. And so we really have to solve this problem. So we have the luxury of worrying about global warming because a nuclear winter would be instant climate change and it would cause starvation of most people on the planet if, if, if a full-scale nuclear war took place between the US and Russia. And, and we have gotten very close. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. But did he give any insight into what was going on at that period of time? Like, you know, there... oh, I've, read a, I've read a lot about it since then. And I think it was mainly negotiations between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And I don't think Fidel really was a player in making, deciding what would actually happen. Yeah. But uh, I think that spooked him, of course, the, 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 the Cubans, uh, are very, when Fidel was running things, and even today, they're very anti-nuclear, just like the people in Kazakhstan, which the Soviets used, the Russians used to test their nuclear weapons and caused a lot of environmental damage. And as soon as they came free from the Soviet Union, from Russia, they gave all the weapons back and, and declared they were anti-nuclear and one of the first also to sign the ban treaty. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, and there have been not just the Cuban Missile Crisis, but almost like accidents where I, I remember hearing something like uh, some uh, Brzezinski, some national security advisor to Jimmy Carter got, got a call at like 3 a.m. They said missiles are on the way. And he was, you know, five to 10 minutes away from making the call to President Carter and saying, you know, here's what's going on. Yeah, and there have been many instances like that. They put a training tape in when they when the, and so they thought it was real, but it wasn't. Uh, or there are planes that have just dropped bombs out of them by, by mistake, or the Russians thought that there were five US missiles coming because their radar showed that. And, and uh, the Russian uh, guy in charge looked at it and he said, this doesn't make sense. Why would they just attack us with five weapons? My, our, my orders are to call up the president, but I decided not to because it just didn't make sense. And, and he was right. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a Russian submarine that had a nuclear torpedo on it. And they were off the coast of Florida and American ships were dropping depth charges on it to try and get it to surface. And they decided, the captain decided he's gonna launch his nuclear torpedo and he had to get the agreement of uh, his uh, second in command and the head of the, com the communist party officer on the on the boat and Vasily Akhipov, the communist guy said, no, don't do it and stopped him from starting a, a nuclear war. So there, we've come very close uh, several times and these are only the things that we know about. So by uh, computers breaking or sensors breaking or misinterpreting it. And right now the US has all these missiles out in Wyoming and Colorado and, and Montana in the ground and the Russians know where they are and it's sort of a situation of use them or lose them. So if, if we detect incoming missiles, they've got to be fired within a few minutes or you lose them. And so the president has absolutely no time to decide what to do. And if, if the warning is a mistake, he would or she might start a nuclear war by mistake. And so 
the first thing we have to do is get rid of those land-based missiles. If we ever want to use nuclear weapons, we can use the ones on submarines, which are invulnerable, or send them on airplanes. And that doesn't have to be done instantly. And so the way we're the way it's designed right now is very scary. And so what, I'm part of an organization called Physicist Coalition for Nuclear Threat Reduction. We have 650 physicists in the U.S. working with the American Physical Society. And we are, we're trying to uh, lobby President Biden to declare no first use of nuclear weapons, that we will never use nuclear weapons uh, first, that, that all options will not be on the table. There, we'll only ever use them uh, if, if we're attacked first. And uh, right now, the nuclear policy review is being, go going, being done in the U.S. government, and we'll see what they come up with in a, in a month or two. But uh, it, it, there's a huge, as Eisenhower warned us about, the huge military-industrial complex, which makes lots of money from this. And when President Obama signed the New START Treaty to reduce our weapons and keep them constant with the, with the Russians, to get it passed through the Senate, he had to agree to a modernization of our of our arsenal. The more submarines with new missiles, more bombs for airplanes, and more missiles on land, uh, tr more than a trillion dollars, money wasted that makes the world more dangerous, not safer. And so <laughs> we really need somebody to, a president, to stand up to the these people and say, no, I'm the president, I, we don't want to do that. But it's it's very frustrating that even... Obama, who said he wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons, wasn't strong enough to, to reverse this. Yeah, isn't that crazy? A trillion dollars on, yeah. I, mean, I, I can understand, you know, hey, we're running, you know, 84 DOS on, on these, you know, nuclear launch <laughs> sites. Okay, let's modernize yeah. that. But what you're describing, a trillion dollars is not updating computer software. That's much more significant. Yeah, it's building, it's building lots, lots of new weapons. And uh, it's going to take it's going to take a while. And the problem is there's a factory in every congressional district that gets money from the U.S. military to build weapons. And so uh, every member of Congress can brag to his or her constituents that we are bringing money in and making jobs in our in our in your district. And it would be much cheaper, much safer if we just paid these people to sit around and do nothing rather than to make these weapons. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and people uh, are sort of brainwashed to think the more weapons we have, the safer we are. And it's patriotic to support the military. Our military budget is equal to that. I think the, the, all the, the next eight nations combined. And who are our enemies? As we were discussing before, our enemies are global warming. Our enemy is not, not China or Russia. They're, they're not gonna attack us. We're not gonna attack them. So, uh, that's so it's very frustrating, but I, I, I do what I can. Uh, the reaction of most people is what Mark Twain said denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Yeah, most people hear about these horrible things and they pretend they didn't hear it. It feels better psychologically to deny it, but I try to work with people to change the policy. And we're publicizing the impacts of on climate and on, and on food. And so, more people in China could die from starvation than in the US or Russia if there was a war between US and Russia and no bombs dropped on China. And during the 1980s, when nuclear winter theory first came out, uh, the rest of the world pressured the nuclear nations to stop building more weapons. And the number has been coming down, but it's not coming down fast enough. And, you know, 
when Obama was president, uh, Rose Gottmuller, his nuclear advisor, was at a conference and I walked up to her and said, why doesn't President Obama reduce our arsenal? You don't need a treaty to reduce our arsenal. The, our, the treaty is the maximum number of weapons, not the minimum number. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. I said, well, President George H.W. Bush did that unilaterally. When the Soviet Union was falling apart, he ordered a massive reduction of our nuclear arsenal. And the Soviets, the Russians later followed. So it's easier, I guess, for a Republican president to do that because they aren't thought of as being soft on communism or, or whatever or, or weak. But uh, a real leader would just reduce our arsenal or take the the land-based missiles off off uh, off of hair trigger alert and then de decommission them. But I don't see uh, any any incidents of that. There's a few members of Congress who support that, and uh, but it, it, it's uh, uh, it's frustrating that nobody's paying attention to it. Yeah, and I think also after the end of the Cold War, the idea that we could be hit by a nuclear weapon just seemed much, much less likely for most people. But as you pointed out, the, the risk of accident, like the, those planes that you said dropped bombs at one point, yeah. I, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with this. Wasn't it like some, some plane was going and dropped something like two or three nuclear bombs? And they, for some reason, they didn't detonate. There was one in North Carolina, there was one in yeah, yeah, they didn't detonate. So, uh, so the world would be much safer without any nuclear weapons. Uh, if we think violence is the way to solve problems, we have precision-guided uh, cruise missiles that could kill people without destroying, uh, starting the whole city on fire, uh, and killing all these innocent civilians. Uh, you know, in 1945, during World War II, the U.S. thought bombing Japan was a way to, to end the war. And they tried. Uh, dropping bombs on military sites during the daytime, but the bomb sites weren't very good and very precise, and the Japanese could see the planes and they would shoot at them. So they decided, let's use incendiary bombs. Let's just start the place on fire and burn the whole place down. Probably every house has a drill press out back. They're probably part of the war effort, so we're not going to worry about killing innocent civilians. Nobody's innocent. And Curtis LeMay, General Curtis LeMay, was in charge of that. And on March 10th, 1945, they sent two planes with napalm and made an X over Tokyo. On and then they sent more than 300 planes in after that with incendiary bombs and, st and burned the whole city down. And more people died, uh, were burned to death in 24 hours than that day than any time before or since in the history of the world. And every day, uh, every three days or so after that, we sent fleets of airplanes to different cities in Japan. And by the August, the 68th and 69th cities that we burned were Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they only used one bomb to do it, not many bombs. But the whole policy of, of killing people was already in place all through that summer. And we killed 800,000 civilians during World War II. And that, that nobody knows about that, but it's horrible. And so that, that was our policy. And so people think that the nuclear bombs ended the war, but they didn't. Uh, Japan was about ready to surrender anyway because their military had been defeated. Killing civilians wasn't the way to end the war. So that's a whole other argument about whether whether we should have dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. No, yeah, and, and and we could do an entire conversation about that. But worth mentioning on that subject is one: all of Truman's, every single one of Truman's generals uh, told him that he doesn't have to drop uh, an atomic bomb on Japan. That they're, as you said, on the point of surrendering. And, and two, the theory that it, it seems to have taken hold in the American imagination 
is that, well, you know, the Japanese, they were going to fight to the last man. And that's why we had to drop the atomic bomb. It's like, okay, well then think for five seconds. If that was true, then why would dropping an atomic bomb have done anything? You know, I thought they were going to fight to the last man. Right. A couple hundred thousand killed. I thought, you know, they were going to keep going. Um, so and, it's, yeah. and Truman was so shocked by the the bombing. He didn't know much about it till he had just become president because Roosevelt had died. And when they dropped the second one, he said, no more atomic bombs can be dropped unless I, I myself, the president, gives the order. You can't, the military can't make that decision anymore. And so the power of dropping atomic bombs went to the president then, and it's been like that ever since. So you may know that the, uh, a military guy carries a little attache case around after the president uh, with all the codes for using nuclear weapons. And I don't know if you remember during, on January 6th when the Capitol was, was invaded, uh, Vice President Pence was in a, a room and he, there was a video of him coming out of the room being taken to another safe place because they wanted to hang him. And following him is a guy with a satchel because he has he had the power to use it too in case the president something happened to the president so it's crazy that that one person can do it uh the there's a paper uh, a book by bill perry former defense secretary and tom kalina called the button where they argue that no one person should have the power to launch nuclear weapons there's never a reason that you have to do it in a hurry if you ever want to use them, let's have a committee. Let's sit down and think about it and make sure that the data we have are correct rather than doing it in a panic, being woken up in the middle of the night, as you mentioned, uh, with Jimmy Carter. So we've, uh, and you, in your email to me, you asked me, was I surprised that there hasn't been a nuclear war in the last 76 years? And the answer is yes. I think we've been very lucky not to have had another nuclear war. We've, there've been many close calls and, uh, when, when, so the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, lobby, it, it's a group of anti-nuclear groups, lobbied the world to have a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. The worst, there, there's already a treaty on biological weapons and chemical weapons and land, but there was no weapon destruction, nuclear weapons. And uh, four years ago, they got the treaty through the United Nations General Assembly. And they also, and I, I attended so, uh, several conferences warning uh, uh, on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear war and delegates from more than hundred countries came to these and, and they, that was the sense of the world. And they uh, finished this treaty. And, and as I said, uh, it came into effect a year ago. And because of that, ICANN got the Nobel Peace Prize that year. And Beatrice Finn, the director, when she accepted the prize in Oslo, she said, the story of nuclear weapons will have one of two endings. It will either be the end of nuclear weapons or it will be the end of us. One of these things will happen. And uh, we should not be held hostage to the, to uh, the, how did she say it? To the, to the, uh, uh, whims of, of unstable people. And this was the time when Trump and, and Kim were arguing about whose button was bigger. And, and so, uh, and presidents even starting with John Kennedy said the same thing. We, we, we live under the sort of Damocles. And when Reagan and Gorbachev made a statement in house in, in Reykjavik, they said a nuclear war should not, cannot be fought and, 
can never be fought and cannot be won. And recently, uh, President Biden and President Putin issued a statement reiterating that a nuclear war can never be fought, uh, can never be won, and should never be fought. And a couple of weeks ago, the five, the P5, the first five countries that have nuclear weapons, the, which just by chance are the permanent members of the UN Security Council, the US, Russia, China, England, and France, issued a statement reiterating that a nuclear war cannot be, uh, uh, can never be fought and cannot be won. Yet, it's, it's a great sentiment. They, they, they even warned about the environmental impacts of nuclear war. But it has to be followed with action. I don't see them doing anything about it. Why don't they start dismantling them? Like, if you think nuclear weapons are a way to deter an attack on your country, how many weapons do you have to put on the capital of your enemy to deter them? Probably one. Okay, one. So maybe you need two in case the first one doesn't work. So the U.S. and Russia each have about 6,000 nuclear weapons. The country with the next most is China. China, England, and France have a couple hundred. And India and Pakistan have about 150 each. And Israel probably has about 90. And North Korea has 20 or 40. So these countries can make as many as they want. China could have as many nuclear weapons as they want. So could England, so could France. And they've chosen to stop at a few hundred. So why doesn't the US and Russia immediately get down to 200 each? That would make the world much more, much safer. And it would prevent a, a, a full-scale nuclear winter because there wouldn't be enough weapons. So that's the first step. And then they have to agree to get rid of them. And the, the Treaty on Banning Nuclear Weapons has a whole process for doing that. And then you have to ask yourself, why are there only nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons? It's no secret anymore how to make nuclear weapons. At least 40 countries have the raw materials, the highly enriched uranium or the plutonium to make nuclear weapons, but they've chosen not to make them. Why is that? And then you think about Iran. The U.S. is trying to tell Iran not to have nuclear weapons. It's like you're sitting in a bar telling people not to drink. Why should they even listen to us? If we think we need nuclear weapons, doesn't that imply every country needs nuclear weapons? What's special about us? The whole thing drives me crazy. Yeah, no, it must be um, it must be maddening. And, and working in these two existential issues of nuclear weapons uh, and climate change, and it, it's very easy to just sort of tune these issues out because it's not like paying your mortgage; it doesn't arrive every month. Um, at your well, global warming isn't going to destroy the world, uh, and it's going to be gradual, and people are going to adapt, and and eventually we'll we'll stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, although we're already seeing terrible impacts. But uh, again, it's a question of money. The fossil fuel companies are running the world and running one of the political parties in our country. And so it's very frustrating. But I'm not worried about dying tomorrow from global warming. I am worried about dying nuclear war. And so we really have to solve that problem first. I think that's the one I focus on. Well, that's interesting because uh, a while back I had Noam Chomsky on and, and he was very adamant that um, climate change is something that could destroy the prospect of organized human life on Earth. Do you agree with that statement? Well, uh, if, if climate change is, 
induces wars and violence, that could destroy civilization. I mean, we already have environmental refugees coming across borders into 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 Europe, into the United States, and so if that's the, if that's the mechanism, maybe, but uh, it's not going to be. Uh, uh, did did he explain how this was going to happen? Um, good question, uh, and and one that I, I should have asked, but. Uh, no, I think it was more just a general um, uh, destabilizing effect on institutions and um, borders, et cetera. Yeah, there's lots. I mean, there's lots of horrible things in the world uh, that can destabilize countries. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing that we have democracies at all because the other option is 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 tyranny and a dictatorship, which we find in some places. So. How did how did democracies survive? How how is that a stable form of government? We've had it, uh, you know, Western Europe and and uh, looks like South America is becoming more democratic. They're getting rid of tyr- uh, of tyrannical governments of dictators, and so it's sort of interesting to see the process of how uh, different countries or organ or, or or states organize themselves as far as government goes, it turns out, I think that, you know, democracies almost never have wars between, between them. Uh, although there was a war between Argentina and the UK, nuclear weapons, by the way, don't deter attacks uh, on countries. There's many examples of nuclear countries not winning wars or being attacked. Israel was attacked in the six day war. Eastern Europe was overrun by the Russians when the US had nuclear weapons and the Russians didn't. Uh, who won the war in Vietnam, who won the war in Afghanistan with Russia, with the Soviet Union, who won the war in Afghanistan with the U.S. So nuclear weapons, uh, and, and, and England was attacked by Argentina. England has nuclear weapons, but uh, they ended up winning the, the war in the Falkland Islands, but not with nuclear weapons. And so they don't deter attack. What, what good are they? People argue, well, they deter attacks from other nuclear nations. Well, it's true. There hasn't been a, a nuclear war since, since the first one, on Japan, but why? Was it because of nuclear weapons or was it because democracies are getting stronger and the world's becoming much more interconnected and dependent on each other? So you, you could argue, I mean, it's hard to prove one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we, we've done a, about an hour here. I, I don't wanna take up too much of your time. Um, so if you have to go, just let me know. But there is one last subject I wanted to ask you about and it's the Toba catastrophe theory that you've done. Uh, oh, sure some research into um, this idea that a super volcano erupted something like 70,000 years ago, and maybe the total human population went down to something like 10,000, which the idea that is so wild to imagine only 10,000 people or so on planet earth. Um, What do you think happened? Well, 74,000 years ago, there was this giant eruption in, uh, what's now Indonesia, the Toba volcano erupted. And I did climate model calculations that showed that the global average temperature would fall by about 10 degrees Celsius. And it would be, imagine you're sitting in front of your cave and this cloud's approaching you. And what have I done to anger the gods? And it gets colder and colder and colder. And if you're lucky enough to live by the coast and you go fishing or a 
big mastodon collapses in front of your house or something, maybe you could survive. But the client model I used, we used, wasn't as sophisticated as the more, more modern ones. And Benjamin Black, who's a professor at Rutgers, just published a paper with some colleagues doing a more sophisticated analysis where they accounted for the fact, as I mentioned before, that if you put more sulfur up there, it doesn't, the temperature doesn't go down proportional to the amount of sulfur. Each additional amount of sulfur is less effective because there's already a cloud there and it makes the cloud fall out faster. And they calculated that in parts of the world, the temperature will go down by a few degrees, three or four degrees, not 10 degrees. And so it looks like it's possible for there to have been places in the world, especially in Africa, where there was a significant climate change, but maybe not enough to, to it wasn't like a nuclear winter. So, so uh, that's the latest in climate modeling, and it's done by, uh, with a really good climate model by very smart people. So you got to take a look at that paper. It's in the, I think it was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So right now, this uh, uh, genetic bottleneck theory of, of uh, anthropologists seems to me to not to, to be still be questionable. So that's not really my area of, uh, uh, of genetics or, or how many people die, but I think that the climate change was probably significant, but it, what, it probably wasn't, I don't, I don't know whether it was enough to, I don't know how many people died from it. I, I, I'd have to do more work on that. But their, their paper sort of looks at different places where there's evidence and anthropological evidence. And some, there were a few extinctions then, but, but not as many as you might expect. It wasn't like the asteroid hitting uh, Yucatan 65 million years ago, which did drive many species extinct, including the dinosaurs. It wasn't as big as that. Um, I, I said that was the last thing. This is the actual last thing. You did mention you met Carl Sagan. I, I can't uh, let, let this go without uh, asking, well, what, what happened there? What was that guy like? During when I was working on nuclear winter in the 1980s, he would come to some of the meetings and give talks. And I heard him also give talks about climate change. And he was a very charismatic, brilliant communicator. And so I was really impressed by him. And he was also very friendly. Uh, his wife was friendly. Uh, uh, and so I thought it was a it was a great tragedy that he died. He was only 62 years old when he died from cancer. And uh, Brian Toon, with whom I work now on nuclear winter work, was his graduate student. And Brian thinks that he may have been mixing up too many chemicals in the laboratory trying to see if he could produce life because the question is, was there life on other planets and what were, chemicals were needed? And maybe he, that poisoned himself. I don't know, but that, that was his theory. But, but uh, yeah, he was, he was, he was a great uh, scientist, a great communicator. We, it's really too bad he's not around anymore. Yeah, I, I know he also smoked a lot of weed. Uh, I don't know if inhaling smoke is is uh, perhaps cancerous. I don't know. Yeah, I never I never got stoned with him. I wouldn't. I don't have any personal experience. <laughs> it would have been fun, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Alan, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I think the work you're doing is super important. Uh, it's about as important as it gets uh, the survival of the human species. Um, so. For people who are curious about your work, uh, want to learn more about some of the things you talked about, uh, is there a good place to reach you or other resources they should check out? Yeah, so I have a, uh, a unique name. I, it's spelled R-O-B-O-C-K. 
if you type, type my name into Google, you'll get to my homepage and all my papers are there and there's links to the work on nuclear winter. There's a picture of me and Fidel Castro and you can learn about everything uh, from my homepage. So that's the best place. And my email's there too. Excellent. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for your time and have a great rest of your evening. Thanks for your interest in my work. 